Do you love God but struggle to fit in? Do you have questions that never seem to get answered? Do you just want to have honest conversations about things that matter? Well, let's slow down and take the time to do just that. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. This week, we are going to start the first of three weeks talking about racial justice. This obviously comes in the face of what happened just a couple of months ago with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And this is important to talk about. We can't act like it's not happening, but we do want to talk about it in relation to our faith. And so we're going to look at racism, racial justice through the eyes of faith and through the eyes of our church. And we're going to start it out with Dr. Soong Chan Ra. For Christians, it's all over the scriptures that God weeps over humanity's brokenness. Jesus wept over humanity's brokenness and fallenness. God is, is grieved when his people are at each other's throats. I think God is very groomed. Before we jump in too far, I want to give you some updates on our sponsors, Infinity Beverages. They're going to be opening some hours in their tasting room. I'm not going to give those away what they are because they are open to change, but be sure to check out their website at www.infinitybeverages.com to see when they're going to be open. Of course, you can do curbside pickup or get delivery as well. Rise Nutrition, same as they have been, open for curbside pickup. Check them out online. Find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee. And that is Rise with a Z. So I moved some things around order-wise, not that you would realize that, but I moved some things around because we need to address a topic that is right in our face right now, and especially in the midst of the news that came out recently about the murder of Ahmad Arbery. Racial justice in our country keeps coming up over and over again, and nothing seems to be getting any better. If anything, it seems like things continue to get worse. And so I really want us to digest this a little bit, and I want us to wrestle with this, especially as people of faith. How should we be responding to all of the things that have been happening in our country and continue to happen in our country? As people of faith, what are we going to do about this huge injustice that's going on in our country. So no better person to start with than Dr. Soong Chan Ra. He currently is the professor of church growth and evangelism at North Park University right outside of Chicago. And he's also authored many books on this exact subject, including his most recent one, which he co-authored with Mark Charles called Unsettling Truths. He also has Many Colors and The Prophetic Lament. All of these books keyed in on the subject of diversity and more specifically on diversity in the church in America. And so I asked Dr. Ra if he would start this conversation by looking at it through a biblical lens. Let me introduce you to Dr. Soong Chan Ra. Yeah, I believe the Bible speaks about racial justice and concern about race, and that it should be understood that um, the Bible is not silent on major social issues. 
and that the scriptures, what they do and, and can do is speak contextually, meaning it speaks into a context and it speaks to a people where certain specific things are happening in that community. So for me as a Christian living in America in particular, when I see the world around me and I, and I observe the challenges and the difficulties that our nation has in dealing with issues around race, the conversations that we fail to have around race and racial tensions and racial reconciliation and, and communication across racial differences and, and the problem of racial injustice. I believe that as, as God's people, we have a, a responsibility, a duty, a calling to engage the scriptures that, that apply to the world around us. And that we can't bury our head in the sand and say, hey, there's no problem here, or there's, this is not an issue. We have to acknowledge that we have seen over and over again that there is a, a fundamental flaw and, a, and an injustice that is rampant in our society around the issue of race, and that a Christian voice into that reality is an important one, a necessary one, especially as believers in, in Christ, that we have a need to say something about this. One of the most challenging things about this topic of race and race in our culture and race in our churches is simply that it's an uncomfortable topic to discuss. So I asked Dr. Raw to share about that as a person who goes all over the place teaching about diversity. Has he felt that tension in the way that people have responded to him? I think the reality is that most of us do not want to have difficult conversations and challenging ones. We like to be handed things that are easy to swallow and easy to address. That's why churches that talk about self-help, churches that talk about you can grow big and have a nice happy party every Sunday, those are the churches that oftentimes, sadly, are the largest churches in our neighborhoods. And so we have we have difficulty uh, addressing difficult issues like race, like racial injustice, like the treatment of the poor. These are very difficult topics for us to have conversations around. And so I think when myself and others uh, raise this as an issue to say, hey, we, we might have some problems here, uh, most people want to cover their ears and kind of move on with their lives. And I understand that tendency. I understand that impulse to say, I don't want to deal with the struggle and pain that is in the world. I just want to kind of go on with my life and be happy in my own life. But I think the kind of disruption we need is the disruption that leads to growth. Richard Sennett, who's a sociologist, taught at NYU for a number of years, he puts it this way, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us choose to change? And that we need that discomfort, we need that disruption in order to change. And I guess I find myself oftentimes dis being disruptive, <laughs> creating discomfort. And I don't think I'm doing that because it's my personality necessarily. I'm actually a, a nice guy that likes to laugh and joke and have fun with friends. <laughs> that's, that's my natural personality. I, I enjoy, you know, fun times with friends and enjoying time with them. But there are times when I see a broken reality and I feel like, hey, let's not avoid that. And so a lot of my writing is, is that kind of disruption uh, to say, uh, if we really want to grow as a church, if we want there to be intentional, healthy discipleship, intentional, healthy spiritual formation, then we've got to deal with the tough issues. And much of what I try to say and speak and, and write on and teach is that sense of discomfort, that disruption, so that we might grow, so that we might strive more for what is better. Has death always given way to life? Or has the sun 
been swallowed by the night did the tree this is professor ra that we're talking to today and he's about to take us to school so get out a pen and a piece of paper because here's some incredibly important information that he has seen as far as trends in our world in our country and in our churches yeah the reality is that we live in an extraordinarily diverse country and an extraordinarily diverse Christian faith in the context of our country. So there's been a lot of historians and missiologists that have documented this very well, that the majority of Christians right now, in at this exact moment, is not in the United States. The majority of Christians are in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, in the Southern Hemisphere or in the Eastern Hemisphere. So what we're dealing with is uh, the very significant and also maybe disruptive reality that the center of Christian faith is no longer in Europe and North America, but it really is in other parts of the world where the fastest growing churches, the largest churches, are really in Africa, Asia, Latin America. And this is very well documented by historians, by missiologists. You know, they've been tracing this for almost 30, 40 years now of how uh, much we have shifted to a non-Western demographic of Christianity. But what I try to write about is that the same trends we see in global Christianity are the trends that we're seeing in American Christianity. And that the diversity we're seeing throughout the world, that uh, Christianity is growing throughout the world, that the growth of the church in America is also pegged to diversity. Uh, so these are things that are not necessarily known in the American Christian public in particular. So, for example, one number that is interesting to me is that it is possible right now that China is the most Christian nation in the world. Now, that's based on just pure numbers, right? So there are estimates that if you have the self-church, which is more of the state church or more kind of the equivalent of a mainline church in the United States, but then if you add the underground churches in China, it's potentially 300 million believers in China. Now, there are 300 million people in the United States, not all of whom are Christian. So it's possible that there are more Christians in China than there are people in the United States. This is an astonishing number for us to think about. And here we go along in our merry way here in the United States, thinking that we're still the center of the Christian universe, and we're clearly not. But what I really want to uh, take another look at is actually we're seeing the growth of the church in the U.S., but not in the white population. It's actually in the non-white population. And what I've pointed out is that the decline in American churches that everybody is so worried about, and everybody is kind of wringing their hands and writing books and pulling out their hair and saying, what are we going to do? The church is declining. That trend is most notable in the white churches, both the mainline Catholic and, and evangelical churches. The trend of decline is actually not evident in uh, multi-ethnic churches, in uh, ethnic-specific churches. African-American churches are not experiencing a downward trend line, immigrant churches are going through the roof. Uh, the growth of Spanish-speaking congregations, the growth of Asian congregations, Korean immigrant congregations, these churches are growing. And so the projection is that it is very possible within the next 15, 20 years that the majority of Christians in America will not be of European descent. So that number is already going to happen in terms of the general population in America. By 2050, the majority of all Americans are going to be of non-European descent. I would say about 10, 15 years before that 
kind of larger demographic social reality, we will see that happen in the church because of these prevailing trends. The decline of the white church, a precipitous drop in many cases, and the growth of the immigrant church, of the ethnic churches and the multi-ethnic churches, means that we will see in, in a couple of decades the diversity of the church moving faster than the diversity in America. So the church in America that's dying is the white version, and the church in America that's thriving is the non-white version. So I don't think we have to think very hard to figure out maybe what God is doing here. If we want to see growth return to our churches, specifically our white churches, I think we need to get more diverse. But that is going to cause us to rethink really everything that we do. Now, before we go any farther, it's really important to get to the nitty gritty of how we got to where we are. Yeah, so if you look at the historical trend of the movement of churches and the growth of Christianity, you will see how racialized some of this kind of movement and trends are. For example, when the African-American community post-Civil War moved in huge numbers to northern cities after Emancipation Proclamation, and this is not just 10 years, it goes over decades and even into the next century. And it's especially noticeable post-World War II where you're getting significant number of African-Americans moving from southern states after the Civil War, after the World Wars, to these urban centers in the north, like Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, but also on the East Coast, Baltimore, New York, Philadelphia, have this huge influx of African-Americans from the southern states. Uh, and they're coming there for jobs, better opportunity, getting away from some of the racism in the south, some of the negative history in the south. They're moving to these northern cities. But what happened is when they moved to these northern cities in huge numbers, many of the whites became nervous about African-Americans moving into their neighborhood. And this is very well documented, not just in church history, but in, in our American history of something called white flight, where white Americans left urban centers to move to the suburbs to get away from the blacks that were moving into urban neighborhoods. Now, the complaint was, hey, the schools are not getting, you know, are getting worse. Our property values are dropping. There's higher rates of crime. And therefore, we need to leave the city and move to the suburbs. And it's interesting, around this time is also when the GI Bill and redlining, opportunities for mortgages for whites, that also increases so that whites are moving in these large numbers to the suburbs. Meanwhile, the African-Americans who came into the city, most of them, 80, 90, 95% of them were committed Christians who start churches, who take over buildings abandoned by white Christians. And these churches flourish. These become actually, in my research, the first wave of megachurches, probably decades, decades before we recognize megachurches like the Willow Creeks and the Saddlebacks. Decades, maybe even a century before, we were seeing megachurches in the black community on the south side of Chicago, in urban neighborhoods in Detroit. These megachurches were already in play, were already active. But we don't recognize that because we're so caught up in the narrative of how white Americans built the church, which then we say, hey, look at Willow Creek, look at Saddleback. They are decades behind what the black church was doing earlier on. But what happens is that when whites leave the urban centers and move to the suburbs, white flight, running away from the immigrants and the uh, uh, African-Americans moving into their urban neighborhoods, the locus of Christian ministry moves from urban to suburban. 
So now the church models are these mega churches, almost all of them in suburban neighborhoods. And so you're seeing this population boom in the suburbs, and that contributes to the growth of the church in the uh, suburbs as well, the mega churches. So people leave their mainline churches in the city, and they end up moving to the suburbs. And these evangelical churches that start up using technology, using uh, entertainment, using all the things that are appealing to suburbanites began to grow in very large numbers. So a lot of the mega church church growth in the 70s and 80s that's part of evangelical growth is actually a lot of it is displacement as in people who chose to leave the city, move to the suburbs, go to these churches, and just start, you know, building these big megachurches. And that's where we saw this trend. But what's, what's notable is that the black churches were still growing, the black churches were still going strong, but all we can talk about are the big churches in the suburbs, the big churches in places like Willow Creek and, and Saddleback. We will hear some conversation in our culture about how racism is rooted in America, but we, I would argue, very rarely, if ever, hear that same conversation about how churches are tied to racism in America. And I don't think there's any other way to look at this than a huge black mark of sin on the American church. I'm examining in in a lot of my writings what drives uh, some of our dysfunction as a church and as a society. And I credit my academic mentor, Willie Jennings, for so much of my formation around this. Emmanuel Katongale, another academic mentor of mine, has really shaped how I think about this. And, And that is the understanding that there is an imagination, a narrative, a worldview that is so embedded in our reality, whether as an individual or even as a church, even as a society. These realities are so deeply embedded, we operate out of that reality, even reflexively, in, in, instinctively. And I would, I would argue from kind of a Christian theologian perspective that that imagination, that dysfunctional uh, worldview, that broken narrative that we have internalized is a sin. It's sin. It's the it's it's a it's a sin that has been deeply embedded in our in the psyche of American society, in the psyche of American churches, and in the American individual, him or herself. And what um, what I think it needs to be examined is how that uh, embedding of that narrative or the assumption of that imagination that says white bodies are superior to black bodies or white um, souls are superior to black souls, or extend that to the superiority of the product of the white mind, superior to the product of the black mind or the non-white mind. These are pretty common realities that we are faced with, and that that was implanted very early in American history that it's not something that just happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or even with kind of the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement. We're not making this up. This has been deeply embedded as a narrative and as part of the diseased imagination of American society. And so my latest book with Mark Charles is a Navajo uh, native uh, pastor and activist. We try to examine the ways that even in the original documents and even in the founding of the United States, we had some diseased, 
those functional expressions that got embedded in our thought, embedded in our social reality. And a theologian in me would say, that's sin. The sin that got the original sin of American society that got embedded into our world and into our systems. And now we keep playing that out over and over again. And so, just like on the individual level when we talk about original sin, we need to address original sin for the purpose of salvation, healing, and restoration. We've got to deal with the original sin of American society, which is a racism rooted in the assumption that white bodies, white minds, white souls and spirits are superior to all other forms. Sometimes we hear this information or information like this, and we think of it as history. But the reality is we're still dealing with this today. And you might think that this has no place within the church, which I can't argue with that. But we have racism happening inside our churches. The reality, the demographic reality, is that we are living in an extremely diverse world, but also a diverse American society. And again, on top of that, a very diverse American Christianity, American church is extremely diverse. In fact, faster in moving towards diversity than society as a whole. Given that reality, given that social reality, why is it that the church does not seem to reflect that in our leadership, in our writing, in our uh, education, in our church leadership and conferences where you don't see the visible representation on the platform of what is the reality on the ground. One of the latest numbers that was produced in 2018 by a research company was that 17% of the voters for 2020 is expected to be white evangelicals, but 16% of voters for 2020 are expected to be evangelicals of color. So we're already at a place this, in this year where it's almost 50-50. Is that the reality you see in the world around us when we go to a Christian conference? Uh, so a friend of mine was doing a cross-cultural adoption, and it was a white couple adapting a black child, and they made him go through, made them go through a training to prepare them for this cross-cultural experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so they brought uh, all the couples into a room, and they put them around the table, and they, each one got a glass bowl, and they put uh, multicolored marbles or many different colored marbles in the middle of that table. And they asked a series of questions and they were supposed to fill their bowl with the color that corresponds with the question. So they asked, you know, the authors of the last 10 books that you've read, the last five TV shows that you've watched, the last five people you've had uh, have dinner in your home, the type of food that you serve, the type of furniture you have in your home. Uh, these were all part of the equation of uh, what you surround yourself with. And, you know, you could ask the same questions for uh, church life and say, uh, the last 10 Christian books that you've read, what color is the author? The last five podcasts that you've listened to, who was the main interviewee or the majority of the interviewees? The last five uh, t TV shows you've watched, but also the last five songs that you sang in church? Uh, who is the author of those songs? What does your pastoral staff look like? What does your elder board look like? Uh, when you have a small group, what does your small group look like? One thing that I, I see over and over again is that many whites don't have that kind of relationship where they are introduced to different Christians of different race and culture, whereas many minorities, we have that experience all the time. I've always had a white professor. I've always had a white superintendent. I've always had a white supervisor in my life. Uh, but we don't oftentimes have the converse happening where a white 
a student might have a, a person of color as their faculty member, or a white pastor might have a person of color as their supervisor. Uh, so that's what happens with conferences, where you're supposed to be putting forth the experts in the front, right? And so oftentimes you'll have conferences where you'll have 30 speakers, and 28 of them are white. And you'll have, you know, one African-American talk about urban ministry, uh, or the one African-American worship leader, or the Korean guy talk about prayer. Uh, but the other 28 speakers are all whites. And so the message is the experts, the people you really want to learn from. Well, that's kind of a white superiority message. So that's why I, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated when I look at seminary reading lists and there's not a single person of color or woman listed as part of the reading list. When I look at lecture series and every single expert they bring in is a white person, or again, when I go to conferences and the, all the featured speakers are white speakers, there's a subtle implicit message that whites have superior knowledge or expertise in these matters. We have an ugly history of racism, not only in our culture, but also in our churches. And we still can obviously see racism happening to this day, not only in our culture, but in our churches. So if we want to be a part of the solution, where do we start? I think hope for the future for me begins with a lament over the past. And I know that's not really an evangelical ethos, it's not really an evangelical worldview, but I think it's a biblical one, because the Bible very often says, remember. Now, some of that is remember the good things God has done, remember the blessings He has given you and that God has been faithful. Of course, we want to remember that, but sometimes we have to remember the sin of our youth. Uh, sometimes you have to remember the generational injustices that have occurred. Uh, sometimes you have to go back and say that, that sometimes God reminds us that, Israel, you haven't really been faithful every generation. And that's something that maybe we as American Christians are maybe slow to react to, to say there are times when remembering is not just God's faithfulness and God's you know, wonderful blessing upon us, but sometimes we have to lament when we remember. And so part of that is our, our deep desire as a church to learn and experience the truth. The church is supposed to be about the truth. Right? I mean, we follow the person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And so for me to ignore truth and to brush it under the rug makes no sense for me. So the truth of slavery, why did slavery come about? The truth of Jim Crow, the truth of racism, the long history of that, the truth of, of broken promises to Native communities, the truth of the Japanese internment. These are not irrelevant truths. So I think the first step towards a hopeful future is really a profound understanding of our uh, lamentable past. And then to actually enter into a stage of lament where we can say, God, we have sinned. And so that lament, that confession, I think is an important part of our present reality. My co-author and I talk about maybe the word racial reconciliation is not appropriate anymore because reconciliation implies an existing relationship that we maybe never really had. And so if you say reconciliation, going back to an existing relationship to an African-American, well, the existing relationship between blacks and whites was slave owner and slave. We don't want to be reconciled back to that reality. So some of it could be the term that we've been using is conciliation, to bring a new narrative, a new uh, story together between the different races. Uh, and that, of course, I, to me, is rooted in Christ, rooted in the person of Christ who says, 
I'll make all things new. And so the possibility of that newness is something that I want to look towards. But I don't think we get to that newness until we walk through the struggles of our past and the pain of our present. That certainly is true that we are a culture that doesn't like to stop and take the time to lament. And that's absolutely the first part of the solution here. And I love his point that reconciliation, when you think about it, doesn't even make any sense because we've never been good at this in our culture. We've never been good at this in our church cultures either. So I love the idea of adopting the language of conciliation. Now, Dr. Ra has committed his life and his career to this very thing, to dealing with racial conciliation and dealing with racial injustice in our culture and specific, again, to the churches. So I wanted to get to the heart of why he does this and why this is so important to him. Uh, when, I, when I think about kind of the racial injustice in the world and the broken imagination, history, worldview narrative, I actually hearken back to, as a believer, I want to have the heart of God. As a believer, I want to do what God moves me to do. There's a very powerful line uh, by the founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce, who says, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. There's profound truth there. And I think for, for Christians, it's all over the scriptures that God weeps over humanity's brokenness. Jesus wept over humanity's brokenness and fallenness. God is, is grieved when his people are at each other's throats. I think God is very grieved. And so for me as a follower of Jesus, I want to move where, where I think God's heart moves towards. And, you know, Jesus's last prayer uh, one of his most important prayers for his people was, uh, Father, make them one, as you and I are one, that the world may know that thou hast sent the Son. We're not one. And sweeping the problem under the rug isn't going to make us one. Telling truth, lamenting together, that is moving the direction and trajectory of becoming one. And I believe that is in the heart of God. And so for me as a person of faith, I have even more of a motivation to pursue these things, not less of a motivation. I have more of a motivation to pursue racial justice, to pursue God's heart for the world, because that's what I believe I'm called to do as a follower of Jesus. Why are we talking about this on Jesus Never Ran? Because this is the heart of Jesus. And if we want to become more like Jesus and we want to be closer to the heart of Jesus, this matters. So I hope that we all take the time this week to follow Dr. Ra's advice and just take some time to sit and lament. That is the first step towards the unity that Jesus prayed for. To learn more about Dr. Ra, you can go to his website. It's www.profrah.com. So profra, like professor. And I'll put all of the links to his books in the show notes as well. But you can certainly just hop on Amazon and type in his name. Next week, we continue this conversation by talking to Jarrell Roach. And he's going to share with us what it's like to be a black man in America. Until next time, keep walking.